Those of you hanging around in here in the book of Revelation, let's take, if somebody in the back has papers there, feel free to walk through and hand them out. Otherwise, let's head to the book of Revelation. Last book of the Bible, so we can do our Bible study and get through as much material as possible this morning. We'll jump right into where we're going with the lesson. Last week, if you were with us, we covered some of the background information, the author, the occasion, the recipients, the purpose of the book. Let's move a little bit further. We stopped right about this point, that when we're studying this book, that there are certain things to keep in mind. This is going to be a, a book of Revelations, a difficult book to study. And yet when we come to it, let's make sure that we keep these things in mind. Number one, we had mentioned this to prepare for the unusual. And I use this God as an illustration that if somebody living back then were seeing items that were in our 2023 world, they would describe them different. Like we used the illustration last week, the American Indians described the locomotive as the iron horse. So when we get into the book of Revelation, some of the things that he's seeing may be in our modern world that he is going to use the like or the as, or different types of explanations that he could not uh, be familiar with. And so he's trying to give us some of that information. So be prepared to see the unusual. Let's go into a little bit further, okay? When we're going into the book, restrain your imagination, okay? Just as a, as a tidbit of advice studying this book, make sure that we don't run further and get further involved into what the text says. Again, every small item or detail, I know that there's, there's importance to a lot of detail, but sometimes we read more into the minutia than into the major message of some prophecy. So we want to be careful that when, that when we're doing it, we aren't speculating. We aren't reading too much into it. And in our day and age, as we study end times, we get a lot of speculation of what does this mean? How does this pan out? And a phrase that we ought to be doing when we're studying this book is just keep on saying the stage is set, but the curtains haven't been drawn yet. The stage is set, but could God keep the curtains closed for another hundred years and rearrange some of the props in the stage? The answer is absolutely yes. So we want to be careful that we aren't speculating. It is not wrong for us when we're studying this book to just say, we don't know. We just don't know what he's getting at. There's this possibility, there's that possibility, but we don't know. And if it's something that we don't know about, let's not build a doctrine on it. Let's not become, you know, dogmatic on it. Let's just admit sometimes we just don't know what it, what it might mean. Okay, and so it'll pan out, it'll play out the way it should. What we want to focus on when we're doing this study is what is revealed and very clearly understandable. Let's deal with what we can deal with. Let's focus in on what is there and revealed and what is clear to us. And then on the others, let's just be careful to say, I don't know. When studying, okay, remember this book isn't written like American books are, well, I shouldn't say American, Western world books are written. When the Western world writes history, we are very careful to do it almost all the time, very chronologically. We give all the details and keep on going, and everything is chronological. Part of that reason is that we are very, very um, focused on when something happens. That's typically how we communicate in this side of the globe. Other parts of the world, they really don't care about the when. They might tell the what. That was very common of the um, ancient Near Eastern, the A&E you'll see sometime, their method of thinking. L let me give you an illustration. In the book of Genesis, you read chapter 1. 
he gives a summary very quickly of what happened in the seven days. And then chapter 2, what does he do? Some people have, some of you have asked, is there two sets of creations? Because chapter 2, what does he do? He rehearses some of the same thing, but he puts in more details. That happens frequently in ancient Jewish, ancient Eastern writings. Especially in this book of Revelation, you're going to see it played out, where all of a sudden it'll give some information about, okay, the seven seals are being opened. And he'll talk about the seven seals real quickly. Then the next couple chapters... You and I in Western thinking are thinking, oh, he's moving beyond the first three and a half years because the seven seals go from the beginning to the middle of the tribulation. So what he's talking about, the next set of judgments must be following that. No, that's not what's happening. He's writing from an Eastern mindset. So he gives us the summary of the seven seals that are open. Then the next section of a passage of one or two chapters, this happens with the seven seals files and uh, bold judgments, then he fills in the blank. So things aren't all chronological. Sometimes it's give you the the summary, the outline, and I'm going to give you some of the information, throwing it in a backward sense, chronologically. That will happen several times in the book of Revelation. So don't let it... um, don't let it confuse. Just understand that's the way that they wrote in that part of the world uh, very frequently. Okay, so Revelation, chronologically, it jumps around at times. The other thing that we want to be careful about is that we ask four questions. These four questions, as we're, as we're going through it, is making observation. What does it say? What is there? Not what isn't there, but what is there, what is re- revealed, and we'll be content with what's revealed. And we'll develop our understanding based on that. Then you want to ask the second question. What does it mean? The interpretation of this passage. And remember, when we're interpreting the passage, symbols are symbols. Allegories are allegories. Just like any other communication we have, like here, you know, if we were saying, I am dying for a vacation... Okay, that, you know that that is, you know, I'm using symbolic, illustrative speech. It doesn't mean I'm literally dying. And so the same thing when we're going to the book, we want to make sure that we're interpreting it with common sense understanding. The third question you want to ask is, how does this fit? How does it blend in with other prophecy previously given? They give the other prophecy, starting with the book of Daniel, then you have multiple other Old Testament characters, Matthew chapter 24, Daniel 9, Matthew 24 especially. They lay some groundwork. It is like doing a staircase. Daniel gives us the first set of prophecy about that same time period. He gives us some information. Then Matthew gives us some more information about that same same time period. Then the book of Revelation gives us more information about that. So we need to understand how it fits together uh, with those other prophecies. And we'll, we'll jump around in scriptures as we're going to the book of Revelation. And then let's remember this. How does this work? How does it apply to me? We want to do more than just get information about prophecy. We want to get more than just uh, a theological mindset. We want to know how this applies to us. How does this change us? How does this move us? How does this motivate us? Even though we may not be living in that time period of a lot of the things that are there, there should be some application to us in making impact into our life. So as we're going through this, we want to keep those things in mind. And remember, we talked about this last week. This is a great, great book to study for several reasons, okay? There's, a, there's the, the um, illustration that, oh, I should go back since I put it all up there anyway. This guy bought this stone for just 10 
bucks. And when he got it appraised, it was worth $2.8 million. He didn't realize that this thing on this, you know, bazaar where they were just doing gemstones was really valuable. Neither did the guy who was selling it. Too often we run to the book of Revelation or other scriptures that same way. We don't understand the value of it. Well, the book of Revelation is tremendous for several reasons, okay? One is it is written by, by God's command. God specifically states in the very first chapter, write these things down. So it makes it a great book because this is what God has for you, which leads me to this thought, okay? This is the very words of God. As you read through the book, you're going to read these statements who bear record of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is God's Word to you, to the seven churches, but to you. So God is writing this so that you can understand the future. You can get encouragement. It is true. The book is absolutely true. There are um, statements made in the book of Revelation about how God is, God is speaking and saying this is true. And then he makes this comment, signified by an angel. That words that it's for signified is the idea of confirmed. Now, the question we're going to have in chapters 2 and 3 and in some of the other chapters is what is this angel? Is the angel a being, a, a singular being like the angel with the wings? Is this angel somebody who's representing God to people? Sometimes the angel, or literally the word is messenger, is the messenger of chapters 2 or 3, is it the pastor to those churches that is speaking and saying this is the messenger of God? Well, in this text where it's used, it has the reference that it's either Jesus Christ being God's messenger or an angelic being. The point is God confirmed. Here's what he told John, and then he confirmed it with another uh, heavenly being saying, this is what I want you to write, and it's accurate. It's 100%. So God is providing witness to this prophecy because it is so amazing. John is so, at times, befuddled. It's like, it is true. It's absolutely true. I even have another witness to this. And the, uh, the astounding fact about prophecy is that there's studies done modern day. They didn't do this years ago. But in modern day, they're doing it, and they're doing the studies with, uh, with probabilities. They're doing the studies with, you know, w- you know, is this a possibility? And when you do prophecies, what they did is they randomly took, one research group randomly took 57 Old Testament prophecies. And in those Old Testament prophecies about different cities, different events that would happen before the birth of Jesus Christ, they put these together and they said, okay, how, what is the chance of these random 57 prophecies coming to pass, though written hundreds and hundreds of years before the event. And in this case, what they did is they, the prophecies that were randomly chosen, they were all fulfilled except for one before the birth of Christ. The other came afterwards. And of these prophecies, it comes down to statistically this type of you know, astronomical figure. That means nothing to me when I see something to the 59th power. I, I don't get that. that. That's not my expertise. I don't understand math that well. But I do understand a comparison, that if you took a silver dollar and marked one silver dollar, and then you laid all silver dollars, this one marked with all others unmarked, and covered the front, the, the surface of our sun and multiple other stars, the chances of you going and picking that one coin on the first chance without knowing where it was and just drawing out of the pile of that many coins, it's one to, it's the same power. 
Okay, it's that, the, the probability of 50, 70 of these prophecies being fulfilled is astronomical. It can only be supernatural superintending. It can only be God. And so this word of God is filled with lots of prophecies that are supported by the fact that God's word has already proven itself to be true. So these things are going to be coming to pass. It is um, in this book, chapter 1, verse 3, says very clearly that there is a special blessing to those of you who take time to understand this book, to read this book. Look at chapter 1, where he says down verse 3, Blessed is he that reads, they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. That idea of this blessing is very clear, just like the Beatitudes, that there is going to be a special rejoicing, blessing, peace in your heart. If you are reading this, if you are hearing, the idea is not just listening like right now, but literally understanding, comprehending. That's the idea of the word uh, here. And then you're keeping that word. So God says, if you study this one particular book, I have a special blessing for you. So that makes it worth our while in order to interact with the book. And yet some people think, well, it's too difficult. One author put it this way. He said, it is shallow, talking about Revelation, the book of Revelation. It is shallow enough for even the most timid swimmer to enjoy without fear, yet deep enough for the expert swimmers to enjoy without touching the bottom. This is just a tremendous book for you to study because it reveals so much. It reveals the future. It reveals what's going to come to pass, the things which will be hereafter. But it's not just revealing the future. It's telling us about Jesus Christ. The first chapter gives us a lot of information about Jesus and what he's like right now. So when we get into the book, let's start with chapter 1, and let's start with what it tells us about Jesus Christ. We begin with the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, whether it be about him, the of, or by him, either one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass, he sent and signified by his angel unto John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw, blessed is that person that reads and see and understands. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and, and in the kingdom and, uh, kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That he's saying, I was persecuted and sent there. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and you see what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with white down to the foot, 
girt about with the paps, or about the chest, with a golden girdle. His head, his hair, were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of, the, of hell and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks. And the stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches and on and on and on. This prophecy starts off with a vision of Jesus Christ. So when we look at the vision, John makes it very clear. When I turned and I saw, what was John's physical reaction? What did he do? He fell down as what? He he says, I fell down. Why? Why does he have that reaction that he falls down as a dead man? What's going on? What was John probably feeling? What was he thinking at that moment? Awe? Anything else? What's that? Terror. Why would you say that he felt any kind of terror? Okay. Does Jesus acknowledge that he's fearing? Look at the passage. What does he tell John to do? Fear not. Remember, he says that very thing. He says, laid right hand on verse 17. Stop fearing, literally. Why is John so fearful? What's that? Does he feel unworthy? Do you think that's a possibility of this? Yes, no. What's other possibilities? His sinless state? Uh, I'm sorry. His sinful state. Okay. But John's an apostle. He's been serving God for decades. He's the, he's the last living apostle. Surely he would not be intimidated by Jesus. Go ahead, Ken. Okay. Okay. Now, now remember, what is the normal response of people when they see an angel? They fall down. Okay. He's not seeing an angel. He's seeing Jesus Christ. Ron, you want to add here? Isaiah 6, when he falls before the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the angels all singing while, while Isaiah is watching this? What are the angels singing about God in Isaiah 6? Holy. Holy. So the holiness is just vibrating through the facility. through the And, and what, is, what does Isaiah feel? Unworthiness. Okay, um, so I'm thinking, this is me, and I'm being silly with, with it. It's just like, what would it be like to see Jesus Christ? You know, we in this modern age, how do we usually present seeing Jesus Christ? How do, how do people represent this idea? Hey, buddy, is there a flippancy that we, that we in, in our society, more and more, I don't know if that's going to be the case. If we saw Jesus in all of his glory, 
we would be glad to see Jesus, but at the same time, would we tremble? Okay. In fact, you know what, a phrase that threw me as I read this this time and studying it through, did you catch what does the world do when they, when they will see him, verse 7? Did you catch that? Every eye will see him when he comes, see him whom they pierced. All the kindreds of the earth are going to do what? Wail because of him. Anybody have another word for wail? Mourn. It's the idea of out loud grieving. It's not a happy wail. It's a woe is me type situation. Why would they do that? Why will the world wail when Jesus Christ comes back? Okay, they're going to know who he is. And now they have to deal with him. Okay, so I just wrote down, why do you think he feels this way? He fainted, loss of self-confidence, no self-reliance. Wouldn't dare to stand before Jesus as if you can look him eyeball to eyeball. Um, He doesn't try to bargain with Jesus. He's thinking he's better than me. I'm a sinner. John has no arrogance, okay? Do you remember John in the past? Did he ever have an arrogant moment, he and his brother? Do you remember which? What am I referring to? What's that? Yeah, you let me have a seat at your right hand, and the brother at the left hand, and it was an arrogant feeling that I deserve to be in these good positions. No arrogance. It's totally deflated at this point. He sees him. He's overcome by him. He worships him, and so thinking about it, okay. This is a revealing of Jesus Christ as he is. Let's just, as we go through this section of Scripture, we're going to see his authority, his appearance, his activities, Jesus' awareness. If we were just to divide and say, what does this show me about Christ? Let's, let's fool with the authority. Look at verse 5. Tell me what phrase or phrases or words in verse 5 highlight authority. From verse 5. Any words or phrases that indicate authority in his part? Okay, the first begotten. Any others? Prince of the kings of the earth. Okay. The first begotten of the dead. You have, he, in other words, he conquered death. That's the idea. He conquered death. That's power, is it not? Okay. Prince in the kingdoms. You got that one. Verse 6, any phrase that comes out. Any indication that he has great authority by something he does? What does he do for the peoples in verse 6? Okay, he makes people to be kings and priests. Therefore, if he makes them to do that, what does that indicate about him? He's got the power to be able to do that, to exalt other people. And then he makes the comment, to him be dominion, the word is to him be power authority forever and ever. Then you go down a little bit further. Verse 7, okay? Anything there that indicates he is powerful by the reactions of people? Verse 7. We, we just talked about it. Okay, everybody, everybody is going to wail. They're going to they're gonna understand their own... Um, what word do you want? they're subordinate to Jesus Christ? Does the world think this way today? Do they have this mindset that Jesus is the the one they're going to answer to? Typically not. 
What's that? Yeah, and, and they, they diminish his power, his holiness, and his glory. Okay? And even we do in Christian realms at times, uh, we make it too familial. Verse 8, anything there that is sta- that a phrase or word or description that the people reading this would say power, authority, alpha and omega. Alpha and omega would be a name, a title that is given that they would understand this is the authority figure. This is the all in all. Anything else in verse 8 that would stand out? Almighty. Okay, so you have the idea that says the Almighty, which is, again, definitive of power and glory. Verse 13, anything about his authority that stands out there? Hmm. Okay, Son of Man is a title. Okay, the Son of Man is a title, and we're going to mention it in the morning service, so you're going to have a heads up of those who aren't here. Son of Man is an Old Testament title that is used for what person? What was it? Daniel used it, Ezekiel used it. Who, when they talk about Son of Man, who are they referring to in, in particular? And remember, from an Old Testament mindset. Okay, they're talking about the Messiah. It is a tra- term that is used for the one who sits upon God's throne the one who sits upon the kingdom of God that will come to this earth. So when you read Son of Man, keep in mind, Old Testament concept, this is the ruler of God's kingdom. This is God's anointed one to rule. Okay, you and I see it all in past. When we think Son of Man, we immediately think of Jesus Christ, which is true. But the title was to imply authority, power, greatness. That's what Son of Man meant. And so we know how it applies to Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Verse 16. Anything there that indicates power? Do you want to guess? Actually, everything in verse 16 indicates power. Okay. What do you, what stands out as somebody powerful? Okay, number one, the right hand. Yes, yes, yes. So he's got the authority in the sense that the stars are in his hands. Okay? Anything, another phrase out of there that indicates power, authority. The sword coming out of his mouth, which we're going to talk about in a few moments from now. And then you have the idea, the, I, the phrasing, and you may want to adjust it because it, it doesn't seem clear in my translation, where it says, his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. The in his strength is referring to the sun's full beaming at, at um, peak power. It's that idea of not, that, that Jesus is more brilliant than the sun at its highest zenith, is the idea. Anybody remember another passage that supports this same idea? Do you remember? Uh, transfiguration, he shows glory, but there's another one that makes the exact same statement that says that when he appeared brighter than the noon sun. What's that? When he appears, actually in the New Testament, when he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, it's very clearly identified that his, he's more brilliant than the sun at its zenith. Verse 17, you got anything there? I, we've already alluded to John's reaction. Okay, he falls down as dead. He's totally stunned by the appearance of Jesus Christ. And then he tells John what to do. 
And John's an apostle. He has some authority. Now that he's obviously understanding this guy's got greater authority than me. And then again, we have in verse 18, I'm he that was dead. I'm alive. I'm alive forevermore. So he overcomes death and he lives forevermore. And he possesses the keys where he says this comment. He possesses the keys of um, hell and of death. Does anybody have another footnote for hell? Hades, what does it mean? There's two possibilities when you, when you read this. Hades, hell, could mean, and what do we normally think it means? What does hell normally mean? Okay, the place down below that's burning fire. And What could it also mean? A more general sense. Okay, the grave. The grave, the idea of the place of the dead. So what he could be referring to is, I have the keys, the authority over all the dead spirits, the spirits of dead people, and I also have authority of all, over all their, if it's in the grave, death itself or over all their bodies. That he is the one that could do what with their bodies? He could resurrect, okay? And again, we're not, we're, we're not certain, but these are different possibilities of saying, I have, but are indicative that he has this great authority, this great power. So when you and I in history, we have these great people that are thrown up as great military leaders, great warriors, but we know who is the greatest just by this passage alone. <clears throat> we know it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here he's giving his appearance. And I want you to just fool with me for just a few moments, okay, on the appearance. He's going to go through and he's going to phrase, and if, if you followed, he kept on saying like or as. Why does he do that? Why does he say he looked like the, the shining of the noontime sun? His, you know, his face was glowing as a bright star. Why would he say like or as so often? Yeah, you're just, you're stumped for words to use. Okay, what's that? Yeah, he's trying to describe it for us, but it's, he's struggling to describe. Okay, and so as he describes, okay, what is he saying? Is there significance? Without running too far with him, is there significance to some of the things that he points out? Other than this is a, this is a, tremendous character. When he talks about his clothing, what does he say in verse 13? He describes his clothing as, and he gives us details that are interesting. His clothing goes down to how far? Okay, it's a garment that goes all the way to his feet, and he points out that there's some type of sash that's wrapped around the chest. Okay, so he gives us this clothing, long robe, and a golden sash around the chest. Is there any significance to this idea? There could be. There could be. Is there any character in history that the Jews would be familiar that wore a garment that definitely went down to their toes and a golden type of a sash? The high priest. The high priest wore that similar type of things. So you have that significance, and you also have several characters in the Old Testament, Jewish characters, in when they appeared in their royal uh, position, like by a throne or standing before the people. They wore similar type robes 
at times. But the high priest is the one whose garments that he was supposed to be wearing when it wasn't the Urim and Thummim, he would be wearing this golden-colored sash as well. So obviously, from a Jewish point of view, you would tie Jesus to the high priest, okay, which may have some significance in that regard. Then he gives us some details about his hair, okay? What do we know about his hair? Did it probably, does his hair now look like it did when he was doing ministry? Probably not. Probably, what color was Jesus' hair? Blonde? Okay, we don't have any, any you know, I know all the pictures you know, that we have, but they aren't accurate. They weren't done. Okay, what, do you, what color skin did Jesus probably have? Probably olive. Because he was, yeah, okay, probably dark hair. Now, what's his hair like? White like wool, white as snow. Okay, any significance to his hair having changed? Typically, what, what do people of the ancient world, what do they think about white hair? Okay, okay. So you have that idea of white significance. The, it's interesting, Daniel chapter 7, you look it up. God sitting on the throne has the same description about his hair color. And so here you have this white, the dazzling, the brilliant, the bright. But it, obviously there's wisdom, there's dignity that's involved in it. Then he describes his eyes. What is unique about his eyes? What's that? Like, remember now he's saying, he says that his eyes were as or like a flame of fire. What does that mean to you? Piercing. Piercing? Okay. Piercing. I, I told you this before. My grandmother in their house, my grandparents, had a picture of Jesus that creeped me out. Did you ever see those pictures that maybe you, there was a picture they had on the wall, and I'm telling you, the eyes were always looking. Did you ever see those pictures? Did you have, ever have, I don't know how they did it, but it was one of those that if we came in the door, and we would do this, we, would, we knew it was in there, and we would peek around the corner, and he was looking at us, and we would crawl across the room, get behind the drape, and peek behind, and it was looking at us. Did you ever see those types of pictures? Okay, and it creeped. This is similar to what he's talking about, but even much more. That idea, that piercing, I think is the best uh, best idea. It's intense, the intensity of it all. Uh, obviously, nothing's hidden from Jesus Christ. Yes? So John is bringing this out. Is that an important concept to the churches that he's writing to? Can you, can you see any importance uh, describing Jesus as having... Eyes that see everything. Yeah, he knows everything about them. They can't hide from him. He's seeing all that they're going through. What do you have here about his feet? Anything in particular about his feet? I mean, you can read it. Does it say, is there any significance? Fine brass burned in a fire. Okay. I, I don't know. I, I yeah. Just several authors bring up and they say, hey, remember, now this is part of the altar system that you have some of the same metals that were here that are in the altar. The idea of probably purified, you know, the, that pure brass, not something that has any alloys in it or no impurities, no weakness. Um, then you go his voice. His voice clearly we can understand. What is his voice like? 
What's that mean? His voice is like many waters. What does that, what does that signify to you? Loud? R- roaring? Authority? Okay. Okay. So you have that, the roar of many waters, the description of God's voice in some, the, uh, the idea that, it, that you know, it's authoritative. Um, he had mentioned it. The voice was also of a trumpet in verse 10. Which, by the way, trumpets were used to do what? The horns were used to do what? Call to attention, okay, gathering, announcements. So again, very authoritative. Um, I think his voice, the indication is what you said, the authority, the sovereignty that he can drown out everything else. With, Do we live in a world of noise? Okay, yes? Okay, let's just do quiet. We're uncomfortable. We are, we are so used to noise, okay? And so, you know, when we say do quiet, we're, we're all, okay, don't dare move. I got that sneeze I want to make. Don't want to make it. All of a sudden, this thing becomes, it, it, this overrides everything, which makes him the majestic one, the one of authority. Then you have his hands. You already mentioned it. Patty, I think you brought it up. In his hands, what's he holding? The seven stars, which he talks about. He's in the midst of the lampstands, the seven stars. And at the end of what we read, they are indicative of who or what? The seven churches and the leaders. What's significant about him holding the leaders and being in the midst of these lampstands? What significance would that be? Control? What's that? Yeah, he's the head of it. He's got the whole church in his hand. Okay. Anything else? Protection. Protection. Okay. That he's present there. He's holding those stars. Who are the stars? We already mentioned that he's talking about the indicating he's the owner, controller, protector. All of that. All of that within that area. His mouth, he talks about in verse 16, if we haven't mentioned already, where he, the two-edged sword... What in the world is he talking about with a two-edged sword? Okay, the Word of God can be the sword. Okay. Judgment can be a part of it. Okay. That we have. The word for sword here is that smaller sword. Remember when we were doing the believer's armor? They had the big broad sword. But they also had the smaller sword that if we were in hand-to-hand combat, we would use the smaller one that would be about 18 inches to 24 inches. Remember that study? And then he says that this small one is the word of, that's in the believer's armor. Is that reference then to the word of God, the authority? What's he picturing? Well, he's picturing he's a whole lot different than what he was when he came the first time. Yes? Okay. Was he ready to fight people when he came the first time? Physically? No. No, but here he comes. He's going to protect. I think there's all of this in here. You know, that he's one who's holding these stars. He's going to be protective. He can bring out judgment. He's the conqueror. So we have all of this that's coming with, with Jesus. And then he talks about his face, which we alluded to already, verse 17, when he says that, um, oh, uh, verse 16, the end of verse 16, it should be 16b. His countenance, his face was as the sun shining in its brightest brilliance. Okay? Which again, something that radiates, something that is going to 
uh, in a good sense, intimidate, that he's filled with radiating glory, something that, wow, this is, this is unlike anything we've ever seen. So with all of that in mind, this presents to us Jesus totally different than the babe in the manger. Yes? Totally different than a mild woodworker. Totally different than a gentle shepherd. Okay? Even though he's protecting. Totally different than what Isaiah has, has, uh, has written several chapters about. The suffering Messiah. He is totally not that anymore at that point. He comes as a powerful judge. So, with that in mind, let me ask you a question. What do you picture when you worship this morning in singing? How do we normally picture Jesus? We, right? I, I don't typically picture him the way John is describing him. I don't have the normal reaction John has when John saw him. Is it possible that we become even too flippant in our thinking when we approach Jesus Christ? Should we fear him? Okay? In a, in a, in a, in a way that we're terrorized by him. No, but should we fear him with awe, respect, Praise, heart, reverence. Should we, should we be more cautious in our worship and not, I'm here, I'm doing my thing. We're standing before this morning. Let's think this through. When we're singing, when we're standing, we're standing, we're worshiping a great, great, awesome God. Okay? And we shouldn't be flippant. We should understand he sees. He knows. Is that a positive for us? We can trust. We can rely. And most amazing of all, he forgives us. Father, help us to have that attitude as we come to worship now. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thanks so much. We'll pick up next week.